Well, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Wayne, and we're glad you're able to worship with us today. Um, today, we're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians, and we're looking at chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. Um, a few years ago, I came across a book review that a friend posted on Facebook. And the book review was of a book called The Happiness Effect, subtitled How Social Media is Driving a Generation to Appear Perfect at Any Cost. And it's interesting, this book was written by a sociologist in the US. And what the author did is she gathered data from 200 interviews uh, from students in 13 universities in the US. And one of the th common things that emerge out of all these interviews is this pressure. This overwhelming pressure to present themselves and their lives as successful and happy. And in fact, the author says that many of them are, uh, they seem to be more interested in appearing happy than being happy. And it's for this reason. It's because everyone is posting all these amazing experiences on social media. And there is this pressure to post the same. To post evidence, photos that you're happy and have an amazing life. Many of those who were interviewed said that they were conscious of the fact that they were managing uh, what the author calls their own personal brand, uh, which includes deleting old Facebook posts that no longer fit who you want to appear to be, or posting photos that present you uh, as people uh, would like to see you, someone who is likable, admirable, and thus, the subtitle of this book, How Social Media is Driving a Generation to Appear Perfect at Any Cost. I think social media can create the pressure for many to look good without necessarily being good. To present this appearance of having it all together, and especially now in COVID when much of our lives are spent online. And sadly, the truth is, for many people, you can appear happy without necessarily being happy. You can appear good without needing to be good. And you can appear to be having a full, fun life without actually living one yourself. But I, th I don't think we need to be on social or digital media all that much to feel this pressure to look good without actually being good ourselves. In work, in our jobs, we all feel the pressure to appear that we, are know, we know what we're doing, even if we have no idea what we're doing. In our social circles, we feel the pressure to look more skilled, accomplished, or successful than we might be. And even in the church, sometimes we feel the pressure to appear more godly or devoted than we actually are. One of our deepest fears, I think, is being exposed as not being the person that we're projecting to others as being. I think we all struggle 
with wanting to appear good without necessarily being good ourselves. And here's where I think Christianity meets our deepest fears and our deepest desires. Christianity offers the possibility of deep personal transformation on the inside, in our hearts. Christianity says that in Christ we are given a new life, a life that is radically different, one that not just appears happy, but is full of joy. A life that not only appears good, but is good. A distinctive, radically transformed and new way of life. A life made new. And that's what Paul is talking about in today's passage and what we're going to look at. First, the need for new life. Second, the gift of new life. And third and finally, the way of new life. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we give you thanks for your word. And Father, we thank you for Christ who uh, promised us a new life and a new way of living. Help us be encouraged and changed by your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the need for new life. Uh, Why do we need new life? In verses 17 to 19, Paul here, he's describing a typical life outside of Christ. What a typical life looks like. And there's some strong statements in these verses. So let's uh, just unpack what Paul is saying here. First of all, Paul's not saying that everyone outside of Christ is ignorant in the sense of being unintelligent or uneducated. No doubt in Ephesus and in our world today, they're brilliant people, culturally accomplished people. But Paul is talking about uh, spiritual ignorance. You can be a brilliant person, you can be accomplished, and yet be ignorant about God. And so what Paul is talking about here is the typical direction and path of someone outside of Christ, someone who doesn't align themselves with God's truth. And he says in verse 18 that this begins first with the hardening of their heart. It says all this is due to the hardening of their hearts. Paul here, he's using a vivid word in the original uh, that refers actually to marble. And so it can actually be translated a marble-like heart. Uh, The verbal form of this word meant to petrify or to become hard. So it's a petrifying of the heart, a hardening of the heart, a certain stubbornness in the human heart. In Romans chapter 1, Paul puts it this way. He says, For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that everyone, not just Christians, but everyone has some sort of understanding about God, 
If you look in nature, you can see his power. And everyone knows God at some level. And yet Paul says they suppress that knowledge. Uh, you can imagine someone um, trying to hold a beach ball underwater. Uh, I'm not sure if you try that in a swimming pool. But it's hard to do because it keeps popping up. And Paul is saying that the knowledge of God keeps popping up for everyone. And if you want to ignore it, you have to keep suppressing it. And Paul says that this is happening in every human heart. That when someone doesn't believe in God and Jesus, it's not just intellectual. But there is a moral component to it too. It's not just they don't believe, but they don't want to believe. So first it starts with a hardening of the heart. And then it leads to a deadened darkened understanding. In verse 18, it says, they are darkened in the understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Again, Paul's not talking about intelligence. He's talking about a spiritual ignorance. And you can think of it this way. If God is light, if God is the source of light, to turn yourself away from him and to walk away is to turn towards darkness. To walk a path that goes away from God is to walk away from the light and towards darkness. Paul says that what happens is your mind becomes dark and then slowly you eventually become blind to the truth of God and blind to the gospel. There is a hardening of hearts, which leads to a darkened understanding, which ends, Paul says, in a deadening of senses. Verse, seven, uh, verse 19 says, having lost all sensitivity. Uh, this phrase in original literally uh, refers to skin being calloused. So you no longer feel pain. And I can think of good times for that to happen. Uh, if you're a guitarist or a violinist, you want calluses on your fingers. And so when you press down on the strings, you don't feel the pain. But Paul says when our hearts get calloused, that's a bad thing. Because when your heart gets callous, you no longer feel pain. And your conscience begins to die. And what it enables you to do is you're free to do anything you want. And the way Paul puts it here is he says they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. Whenever we give ourselves to, say, lust or greed, you know it doesn't just end in one thing. It's progressive. You have to keep doing more and more, and you walk further down that path. And Paul's saying when that happens, when your hearts become calloused and your senses become darkened, deadened, and of course not everyone who walks that path goes the whole way. You know, by the grace of God, we are withheld from walking 
all the way down this path. But this is the path that we're on without Christ. It's the natural inclination of our hearts and the natural direction of where we're headed in life for all of us. And so Paul says that this is the natural progression of life outside of Christ. First, a hardening of hearts leads to a darkening of our minds. And finally, a deadening of our senses. It's a picture of the progressiveness and the pervasiveness of sin. And it invades our entire lives, our minds, our hearts, our senses. And it's progressive. It doesn't stand still. It keeps pushing us further down this path. And this is why we need new life. And so secondly, let's look at the gift of new life, the gift of new life. Paul here, he uh, turns a page um, to talk about what this new life is in verse 20. And he says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. And Paul, he starts to begin to describe what this new life is all about. He first talks about how it begins, and he uses this image of a school. Notice the verbs that he uses in verse 20 and 21. He says, you learned, you heard, you were taught. It's educational language. And the way Paul actually literally puts it in the original is that the way that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. When you heard Christ and were taught in Christ. Because Paul's not just saying you have learned about Christ, but he's saying as you got to know him personally, as you learned Christ. And he's not just saying as you heard about him, but it's as you heard his voice personally through the word of God. And it's as you are taught in him. That is to say, Jesus is both the one who teaches and also the one who is taught. And this is where this new Christian life begins. And it's not by learning about a religion or a philosophy, but knowing Jesus personally the one who died and rose for our sins. Not by hearing the teaching about him, secondhand knowledge, but by hearing his voice personally as you are read and hear his word taught. And Paul goes on um, to describe this new life in verse 22 to 24. And he says this, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And here it's a picture of God reversing the hardening, reversing the darkening, and reversing the deadening. 
the verb Paul uses here, if you look at the grammar of these verbs, are infinitives. He says to put off, to be made new, to put on. And these infinitives can be uh, translated in a number of ways. But I think what Paul is talking about is what God does to us in Christ, not what we do. God does something in our hearts. He puts off certain things. He puts on certain things. And he renews us. If you look at the parallel passage in Colossians, Paul says there in very similar terminology, he says, since you have taken off your old self and have put on the new self. These things have happened in the past. 2 Corinthians 5 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And Paul's saying something has happened deep inside of us. It's a complete change of nature. And Paul is saying that if you are a Christian, this is what has happened to you. God has done this radical work of changing your heart and giving you a new, la- new nature and new life in Christ. And he's taking off this new old nature that is corrupt, that is decaying, that's in decline. It's characterized by evil. And instead, he puts on you a new nature, which is fresh and powerful and has a certain strength. And it is like God in righteousness and holiness. When God gives you a new nature, you have a new heart. You may look like the same person on the outside. But when God goes to work, he makes you new on the inside. You're created to be like him, righteous and holy. And it gives you a new attitude, new desires, a new power. You have the ability to say no to sin. You have a new interest in the word of God. These things interest you now. And you have a heart that pulls you towards God instead of away from him. And you can't live the same way as you did anymore because there is this new nature at work in you. And so finally and lastly, Paul talks about this new way of life. Verse 25, it transitions from what God has done in giving us a new life to then how are we supposed to live? And Paul uses this word, therefore, meaning in light of what I've been talking about in the past few verses, you know, how God the Father has given us a new nature, in light of who you are in Christ, in light of this new nature that God has given you, Paul says, you have to live your life in light of that. And from verse 25 to 32, he gives us a long list of what it means to live as a new creation. And what ties all of these things together is that all these things are things that destroy unity or things that build up unity. 
And the things that you're not supposed to do, the things that Paul says you aren't supposed to do, they destroy unity and grieve the Holy Spirit. And the things that you are supposed to do are things that build up unity in the Spirit. And they all have to do with our relationships. This new way of life changes the way we live in relationship with others. So what does it mean to live this new way of life? Well, it means uh, we are to love each other with our words. Verse 25 says, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We're called to speak the truth in love. You know, you can use the truth as a weapon. You can use the truth to tear someone down. But we're supposed to speak in a way that builds someone up. That's how we love each other, with our words as instruments of encouragement and healing. It also means we're supposed to love with our actions. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work, doing something, something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Which is interesting. Were there former thieves in the church at Ephesus? Which would be evidence of the reach of the gospel. But we're called to work with our hands and also to share with those who are in need. I remember a few years ago uh, when I was living in the States and working at a church there. Um, I was planning a short-term uh, missions week to help rebuild homes uh, for families who, who are living nearby, um, affected by Hurricane Sandy. And during this time, I happened to catch up with an old uh, friend from high school. Uh, he was working as an investment banker. And he, he was sharing about the uh, difficulties and the challenges that he was facing at work and the long hours that he had to work. And then I also had the opportunity to share about the ministry at my church and the plans we had for this mission week and the uh, financial needs for this project. Uh, a few weeks later, I uh, received a mail, uh, received a letter in the mail uh, with a check. And it turns out that the amount on the check was enough to cover the entire cost of this project. And what happens was uh, this friend, he, turned out, he saw this great need. And he actually donated his entire year-end bonus to support this work uh, of missions. Actions of service and generosity. It also means uh, we are to love with our attitudes. Verse 26, it says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Verse 31, it says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. 
forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Um, Augustine, the great Christian thinker from the 4th century, um, he became a Christian after a long period of giving into youthful lust and exploring intellectual paths and options. But one of the key people to bring him to faith was uh, a man named Ambrose, uh, who was at that time the Bishop of Milan. And this is what Augustine said of Ambrose's great influence on him. He says, it was not your great teaching. I scarcely expected to find that in the Christian church in any case, but that you were kind to me but that you were kind to me. It was Ambrose's kindness that brought Augustine back to faith. Paul says that because we are a new creation, because we are dearly loved by Christ, because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, because our old selves have been taken off, and because we have been given a new identity, we can live this new way of life. And this new way of life means loving each other with our words, our actions, and our attitudes. It means taking off certain negative bad habits that may have occurred in our lives and putting on positive habits of this new way of living. But it's not God has done his part, and now you have to do your part. There's effort, but it's not effort by sheer responsibility. What Paul is talking about here is dependent responsibility. What is the difference? Sheer responsibility says, I just have to do this. This is the right thing to do. I've got to get this done. I've got to sum up the willpower and courage to do this. I just have to do it myself. But dependent responsibility says something like this. God has made me his child and has given me a new nature. And I have a new nature just like his. And Christ loves me. I'm dearly loved by Christ. And the Holy Spirit indwells me. And he gives me power. And I don't want to grieve him. And therefore, with their help, I will do this. Not because we have to, but because we want to. In Christ, we have been given a new life. And it's nothing less than the transformation of our hearts. And this new life leads us into a distinct lifestyle that's different from those around us. A life that is new, a life that is full, and a life that not only appears good, but is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ. 
We thank you that in him we can have new life that is found in you. Father, for those of us uh, today who may not know you yet, may you encourage us and remind us of this great truth that we can find this new life in you. Father, for those of us who know you, Father, may you encourage us to live this new way of living by the power of your Spirit, knowing that you have given us a new identity and knowing that we have the help of Christ throughout. So, Father, we give you thanks, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.